Well, there's a famous quote um, from a man named A.W. Tozer, who uh, someone once called the only Protestant mystic. Uh, but Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And you may have heard that quote. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that perhaps there's more to it than you may have even considered. A few months back, David Brooks wrote an essay about the disintegration within the American church, and he quoted the president of Christianity Today who said, As an evangelical, I found the last five years to be shocking, disorienting, and deeply disheartening. People who I used to stand shoulder to shoulder with, I now realize we are separated by a yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. A yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension. Have you ever felt that? Uh, people using the same words, gospel, grace, forgiveness, but evidently meaning very different things. Well, this conference has been wonderful. I've learned so much, but I think I join many when I say the highlight was the story from the mother who'd lost her husband and child, uh, telling herself she'd done the hard work of forgiving and believing it, uh, but uh, 19 years later, realizing and then reaching out and apologizing uh, to the man who'd killed her child for her unforgiveness. And that just wrecked me, and I, I know it wrecked all the people around me from the tears that were around the room. The late Tim Keller uh, talked about our professed theology, what we say we believe with our mouths, but he contrasted it with our functional theology, how we live, street level, what's in our heart. The subject of this conference is how we navigate difficult conversations, how we handle conflict. Well, my thesis is that our functional theology, not what we say we believe, but our heart's view of what God is really like and how God relates to us personally and individually, that this will be most revealed in how we relate to others when we are crossed. So if I could paraphrase Tozer, what comes out of our heart in conflict is a window into our own heart. And that enables us to see our own functional theology. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I could never believe in a God who... And uh, usually spoken by some uh, sensitive soul troubled by a perception of God, I could never believe in a God who judges others, for example. And that's understandable, and yet if you think about it, the statement's odd, isn't it? I mean, if there were a God, could anyone be qualified to judge what God should be like? Um, that's kind of what being God entails, that no one but God gets to say what God is like. And yet still, still, we can't help but wonder ourselves. I believe it is the most human, most ancient question. God, what are you really like? Unless we think that's not our question, it was Moses' question. Remember at the burning bush when God appeared to Moses and called him to go to Egypt? Do you remember what Moses asked? He said, if the people ask me, what is your name, what shall I say? Now in the Bible, name did not just mean what someone went by. It's what they put on their driver's license or answer to on the first day of school. 
Your name conveyed your character, what was most true about you. Your name was your autobiography in a word. Now Moses knew in one sense, this was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his fathers, but he also knew in another sense that he did not yet know this God. Hence, what is your name? The suspicion that was confirmed just a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 6 where God spoke to Moses and said to him, this is Exodus 6 verse 3, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. You might know a lot of churches are studying Exodus these days. The Old Testament scholar Dennis Olson said one way to read the book of Exodus, it's the gradual unfolding of God's name. And you could actually trace that, if you, if you studied the book of Exodus, you could trace that theme through the whole book. What's the climax? Where does God most fully reveal His name? Well, that would be Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. You may have grown up hearing John 3.16, or at least seeing it behind goalposts at football games. I never saw an Exodus 34.6 sign, but this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. These verses may be the most quoted verses in the Bible, by the Bible, which shows you how important they are. And once you start looking for these verses, you'll notice they are echoed throughout the Old and New Testaments. Before I read Exodus 34, let me set the context, because it's one of the most electric scenes in the Bible. Back in Exodus 33, Moses asked God to assure him that his presence will go with them and will never leave them. As a sign, Moses asked the Lord, Please show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. The Lord answers in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Notice, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. God's glory in the Bible is associated with His beauty, but we can see that God's beauty is most clearly demonstrated in His goodness. Or put another way, the glory of God's name is the beauty of His character expressed in His goodness. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim my name. Then the Lord says to Moses, Because no mortal can see my face and live, I shall hide you in a cleft of rock, and while my glory passes by, I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. The Lord gives Moses further instructions, tells him to come up on Mount Sinai, and then <clears throat> here they are, some of the most important verses in the Bible. We'll begin in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. John Mark Comer wrote a great book on this story called God Has a Name. Apparently God has a name, he wrote, and to clarify, it's not God. God is revealing to Moses his innermost character, what he's really like. And here are the key verses. Verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. 
Now, there's a lot in these two verses. They raise a lot of questions. And we, might, we not, may not phrase it like Moses, what's your name? But again, this is a perennial, perhaps the perennial question. It's the question of a teenage girl alone in a room or a middle-aged businessman at the end of his rope. God, if you're there, what are you really like? If the Bible is the world's most important book, you could say this is the most important page, the Lord's response to Moses. Do we have any idea what we have in front of us? The Creator is allowing His creation to peer into His beating heart. Here's my name, the Lord. Have you noticed that in most English Bibles that LORD is in all caps? In the original Hebrew, back in Exodus 3, when Moses asked God in the burning bush, What's your name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Exodus 3, verse 14. Has that answer ever frustrated you? I am who I am. Well, that clears it up. In Hebrew, that sentence corresponds to the four Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H. The Hebrew language does not have vowels. Y-H-W-H is derived from the Hebrew verb to be. You could translate it, I will be what I will be. Yahweh is not a title like the word Lord in lowercase, which is the common word for master. It's a personal designation of a relational being. I will reveal my character, the Lord is saying. I will reveal who I am by what I do. That's Exodus 3. And we know what's about to happen. The Lord is about to set His people free, redeem them, bring them out of slavery. One scholar says, Lord is God's salvation name. And the Lord repeats His name. Did you see that? There are only a few places in the Bible where a name is repeated. Martha, Martha, Absalom, Absalom. The Hebrew language did not have punctuation marks, no exclamation points. So when the writer wishes to emphasize something, he repeats it. As if to say, this is what I'm really like and what I'm always like, unchanging. If the Lord is compassionate, He's compassionate all the time, 24-7, 365, for eternity. I want us to notice how different this passage is from what we expect. We tend to think about God in categories that have more to do with philosophy than the Bible. When describing God, we, turn, we tend to turn to the omnis, that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, or omniscient, all-knowing, or omnipresent, everywhere at once, and those things are true. But please notice, when God describes Himself, uh, please notice He does not begin with how powerful He is, or how He knows everything, or how He's been around since before time. True enough, but apparently not the most important thing. The Lord starts with His character. You want to know? My name? You want to know what I'm really like? He begins compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. One author puts it, which makes sense. Starting with the omnis is kind of like somebody asking about my wife and my saying, she's 33, 5 foot 1, 120 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, that's all true. But as you sit, if you sat there as I was spouting off the facts about my wife, at some point you'd interrupt and ask, Yes, but what is she like? Tell me about her, her personality. What is she passionate about? What made you fall in love with her? What makes her, her? Robert Alters, a very fine Hebrew scholar, notes that in Hebrew, word choice and word order, these are very important. 
So pay careful attention to where God starts in telling us His name. What comes first? God says He's compassionate, compassionate, and gracious. At the top of the list of Yahweh's self-disclosure is press release to the world. His name, the Lord, is compassionate. You might know Rembrandt, the great artist, had a special genius for using colors to draw the eye, to show us the beauty of what we might be inclined to otherwise think was just another face. Where does the master artist draw our eye? What is the dominant color in his painting? He's telling us his name. God says, first word, compassionate. Sometimes translated, full of mercy. God's baseline emotion toward us is compassion. Felt sympathy for his creatures. Full of mercy. Some of you might be getting a bit nervous right now. You say, that's not all. Look how the passage ends, and don't skip over that. And that's, that's right. That's how the passage ends, slow to anger. But the Bible never says that God is slow to mercy. It says God is rich in mercy. Several times the Bible says God is provoked to anger, but never does the Bible say that the Lord is provoked to compassion. In God's self-disclosure, God tells us His fundamental disposition toward us is full of compassion. The word is rahum. It's from the same root word meaning female womb, suggesting the intensity of devotion a mother has toward her infant child, which is precisely the context you can find the word repeated. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion, no rahum, on the child she has born? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you, says the Lord. Isaiah 49, verse 15. Listen to how the Hebrew poet echoes Exodus 34 in Psalm 103. The Lord, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Again, he leads with the Rahum of Yahweh. As a father has compassion on his children, the poet continues, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. This is a feeling word compared with <clears throat> um, how the, even the best parent feels about his or her child. Jesus wants us to know that this is what the heart of God is like. The most beautiful verse of his most famous story, when the father sees the prodigal son, what does Jesus say? But while he was yet a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Lest you think I'm overplaying this line, it's not possible for us to overstate how compassionate the Lord is. It is impossible for us to overemphasize the depths of mercy in our Lord's heart. The Bible calls him the Father of Compassion. That's 2 Corinthians 1.3. This is what God leads with, Rahum, a feeling word. And keep reading, compassionate and gracious, Rahum ve Hanum in Hebrew. It's a feeling word placed alongside an action word, Hanum. Grace in the Bible is not an abstract concept. It is above all a power. To show grace is to extend undeserved kindness. To hanum someone is to help them out in a time of need, when they could never repay 
and in fact don't deserve our help. It's to extend a hand when someone deserves a fist. Second Kings reads, Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern. Second Kings 13, 22. Or again in the Psalms, <clears throat> You, the Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. That's Psalm 86, verse 15. Again, echoing Exodus 34. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. I wish all of you knew my wife. Uh, she's better than me in practically every way, except foot speed. I, I can run faster than my wife. But she can be in the deepest sleep, bone tired, and yet the tiniest whimper from one of our kids, and she's up. Well, that's the sensitivity conveyed in these words here. There's deep, tender feeling, Rahum, coming together with the desire to help, Hanum, pouring out of the best mother's heart. Except <clears throat> uh, the, Lord, the, the Lord is greater than the best. We know there's something primal about a mother's connection to her children. The biblical writers are saying that even the most nurturing mother is a dim reflection of our Lord's compassionate and gracious heart. As a kind of negative example, remember why the prophet Jonah runs away? He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, Israel's despised enemy, and he tells God why. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as Jonah 4 verse 2. Jonah is quoting Exodus 34. I know what you're like, and I don't want you to be that way, the way that you are with them, my enemies. You're going to forgive them. Oh, Jonah is exhibit A, that you can have the right words, but not know what you're talking about. His professed theology collided with his functional theology. And we get to overhear it. Jonah was blind, blinded by his own righteous mind. He was using all the right words, but we can miss the heart of God entirely. So, there you have it. One biblical writer after another telling us the Lord is compassionate and gracious. But I want to stop here and ask you, might we be so bold to admit that this is not what we are inclined to believe, even though we are told over and over and perhaps have heard it ourselves for years in church? T.F. Torrance was one of the great theologians of the 20th century. He wrote, if we were a bit more honest, here's what really comes into our hearts. Quote, fearful anxiety arises in the human heart. As left to ourselves, the ultimate being of God can be to us only a dark, inscrutable, arbitrary deity whom we inevitably think of with terror is our guilty conscience makes us paint harsh, angry streaks upon his face. I believe Torrance is right that when we are squeezed, our functional theology comes out. And I'll prove it by way of two tests. Where do you turn when you have disappointed your ideal version of yourself? That's how someone wants to find shame, and I think it's a rather good definition. You've disappointed the self that you've so long been trying to put up and protect. Well, by nature, we withdraw. We withdraw in secrecy. 
We think if God is holding us, He must be disappointed as we are so disappointed in ourselves. Or if God is holding us, it's at a distance, pinching His nose. See, if we relate to God on the basis of our own righteousness, which we do, which we will feel a need to protect and defend, then we will be prone to withdraw from God in our shame. So that's a test of whether you truly believe that God is compassionate and gracious towards you. Where do you go with your shame? Another test, how do you relate to others when others have hurt you? treated you like an enemy, have done you wrong? Do you withdraw? Do you detail their sin in your mind, dwelling on their wrongness, simmering in anger, indulging in self-pity, justifying your imagined responses, punishing them by withholding forgiveness? Dane Ortland wrote a great book, Gentle and Lowly, about the heart of God that centers around an image he got from an old Puritan named John Flavel. What our sins evoke in the heart of God is not disappointed anger, but, Flavel writes, his pity, his compassion is increased all the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. Some of you have lived through the nightmare of a sick child in the hospital. If your child was stricken with a fatal disease lying in a hospital bed and that dreadful contagion had left splotches all over your child's skin, would you be more prone to withdraw from your child or, or more prone to move closer? And Flavel is saying, as with our Father in heaven, the very things that you feel most ashamed of about yourself and most deeply regret, this very real foulness that has leaked out of our lives, this is where God is most drawn toward to help you. That in your sinfulness, He does not cast us off. He draws near with compassion and grace to help us in our time of need. Flavel writes, He takes side with you against that within you that you are most deeply ashamed of. He is drawn towards you where you are most sure He does not want to be. He is not repelled by your very real failures. He's drawn towards your need like a tender, gentle physician. Or as Ortland put it, the things that make you cringe the most make the Lord hug the hardest. Now, if we really believe that, if we lived in that reality, how different might our lives become? Well, then our weaknesses and our failures might become our treasures because they would keep us near our Lord's heart. Can you imagine with me just for a moment how very differently you might walk through your days if this were your functional theology of the Lord's real disposition towards you? But it is His real disposition towards you. You say, what of God's anger? Well, I'm not dwelling there because Torrance is right. Despite our cultural permissiveness, or as Romans 1 reminds us, we don't need to be convinced of God's judgment. We can try and suppress it, and we do, but as remember how Torrance put it, fearful anxiety arises in the human heart as our guilty conscience makes us paint harsh, angry streaks upon God's face. And yet Lamentations 3 verse 3 says, God does not willingly afflict. God is inclined to be forgiving. 
slow to anger, but there's nothing slow about His mercy. He does it with His whole heart and without reluctance. No less than Jonathan Edwards writes, He is a God that delights in mercy. And then Edwards adds, Judgment is His strange work. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Judgment is His strange work. And if you know anything about Edwards, he never soft-pedaled God's just judgment. Yet he follows Scripture's own lead in calling mercy that in which God most delights. We're inclined to think that mercy is His strange work. Tis mercy strange. Our fearful hearts expect that judgment must come from a holy God. In fact, we see Moses' question is our own, isn't it? God, what is your name? What are you really like? I said earlier Exodus 34 was the Lord's most complete revelation of His name. Moses prayed, show me your glory, show me what you're really like. But do you remember what the Gospel of John says about Jesus? In the opening, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 verse 14. We miss this in English because it's translating Greek, translating Hebrew, but that phrase, full of grace and truth, is actually the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew from Exodus 34 verse 6. John's quoting Exodus 34, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's deliberately echoing Exodus 34 to tell us, tell his readers, that what Moses was not allowed to see, we have been allowed to see. That the Lord who revealed His name to Moses took on flesh. And in Jesus we have seen His glory, His beauty, His goodness, His name. I will be, I will reveal my character by what I do. John is assuring our doubting hearts just as Moses himself needed assurance. This is what the Lord is like. Lest he be <clears throat> uh, mistaken, later in John we're allowed to eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer to His Father. In John 17, Jesus prays, I have revealed your name to those you gave me. I have made known your name to them. Eugene Peterson translates, I have spelled out your character in detail. What is it that the Lord wants us to know about Himself? Compassionate and gracious, bounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger. But we must look at this phrase before we go, the end of verse 7, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And an attentive reader is rightfully confused. Forgiving, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. But that's what forgiveness entails, right? <clears throat> and there's a tension in this text. It's not hidden. It's in God's own name. In many ways, you could say the story of the whole Bible is how this tension will be resolved. Today, all we'll say is when the text says, in Exodus 34, punishing to the third and fourth. You can't see this in English. Our translations add generation, but that word is not there in Hebrew. Third and fourth is to be contrasted with maintaining love to the thousands. Now, I'm not that good in math, but even I get the point that a thousand is much greater than three or four. So much more is the Lord's willingness to forgive 
contrasted with his reluctance to afflict. Thousands means we can never exhaust God's mercy toward us. The justice of God is perfect, and that is good news that God cares about injustice. The justice of God and mercy of God are not at odds with one another, like a seesaw, where one diminishes uh, to the degree the other increases. Rather, the more robust my sense of how justly I deserve the wrath of God against all that is wicked in me, the more robustly I will feel God's mercy towards me. You see, it's sometimes said God is perfectly merciful and perfectly just, and at the cross He satisfies both without compromising either, and that's true. And yet, if we're going to let Scripture paint the picture for us, we must add, it is the Lord's mercy, it is the Lord's compassion that leads. It is His mercy that moves Him to satisfy His justice at His own expense. I will be, I will reveal my character by what I do. The cross is not just mercy, it is just mercy. The wrath of God in the Bible is, even the, <clears throat> the wrath of God in the Bible is wrapped in mercy, is the wrath of God falls upon God by God's own choice, out of God's own faithfulness, to be our compassionate and gracious Lord. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our functional theology, not what we say, but our heart's view, who God is and how God relates to us personally and individually, this will be revealed most especially in how we relate to others when we are crossed. What comes out of our heart in conflict is a window into our own heart. So I must ask, do you know this compassionate and gracious Lord. I want to close with a story from your high school English class. I think I can <clears throat> afford a scar uh, spoiler alert on The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The protagonist, Hester Prynne, has an affair with uh, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. They have a child out of wedlock, Pearl. Often taught today as a celebration of Hester's heroic resilience and Dimsdale's hypocrisy. And Hawthorne's exposing the hypocrisy of the New England church, which he was. But maybe, brilliant author that he was, Hawthorne was doing more than we might notice. Here's how the novel ends, and I'm just going to read it as Hawthorne wrote it, because you don't paraphrase Shakespeare. And that's what Hawthorne is. He's, he's the American Shakespeare. Well, it's the town square... Dimsdale and Hester and Pearl and all the clergy have gathered, uh, all the townspeople, and, and Dimsdale speaks. Hester Prynne, cried he with a piercing earnestness, and the name of him so terrible and so merciful who gives me grace at this last moment to do what for my own heavy sin and miserable agony I withheld myself from doing seven years ago. He's standing beside her. And you hear the echoes of Exodus 34, don't you? Hawthorne continues, The crowd was in a tumult. The men of rank and dignity were so taken by surprise and so perplexed that they remained silent, inactive spectators of the judgment which providence seemed about to work. Hester, I am a dying man, so let me make haste to take my shame upon me. Partly supported by Hester Prynne and holding 
one hand of little pearls, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale turns to the dignified holy ministers who were his brethren. And I love how Hawthorne puts this, to the people whose great heart was thoroughly appalled and yet overflowing with tearful sympathy is knowing that some deep life matter, which if full of sin, was also full of anguish, was about to be laid open to them. Hawthorne is saying the people get it more than the ministers. Hawthorne writes of Dimsdale, he stood out from all the earth to put in his plea of guilty at the bar of eternal justice. Ye that have loved me, ye that have deemed me holy, behold me here, the one center of the world. At last, at last, I stand upon the spot where seven years since I should have stood here with this woman. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, ye have all shuddered at it, while there stood one in the midst of you at whose brand of sin and infamy you have not shuddered. Now he stands before you, and he bids you look again at Scarlet's, at Hester's scarlet letter, and he tells you that with all of its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breast. And with a convulsive motion, he tore away the ministerial band from before his breast. This is a public confession of guilt. But listen to how Hawthorne describes him. The minister stood with a flush of triumph in his face, as one who in the cries, in the, excuse me, as one who in the crisis of acutest pain had finally won a victory. Then down he sank upon the scaffold. The burden was removed. A spell was broken. Dimsdale speaks, but listen where he focuses. God knows and He is merciful. And He has proved His mercy most of all by bringing me here. Had these agonies been wanting, I had been lost forever. Praised be His name. That's how the Scarlet Letter ends. Now, I, I, I read most of the last chapter to you, but even from my recitation, who gets the gospel? Not the clergy, not the men of rank and dignity. They had all the right words, but a yawning chasm of mutual incomprehension had opened before them. They were sincere, but they did not know that they did not know the God they thought they knew. Not even Hester, brave and resilient though she proved to be, like Victor Hugo in Les Mis, I think Hawthorne understood the gospel more deeply, more deeply than most in the church, which is why he became a critic of the church. And in his greatest novel, the only one who gets the gospel is the one who on the final page calls himself the one center of the world, Arthur Dimsdale. All of his life, he'd been talking about God, saying His name, thinking he was sincere, grace, gospel, forgiveness. But it's only here, at the end, that he is saved. God knows, and he is merciful. And Hawthorne writes, the burden was removed, a spell was broken. Now, our stories are not so dramatic, but the question does remain for us here this morning as well. 
You say His name, but do you know His name? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Well, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, those who know your name, put their trust in you. For you have never forsaken those who seek you. Help our hearts, Lord, to trust that your heart toward us is full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to us, your children, because of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.